Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 1st. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. And the headline for the very first story, written by the Des Moines Bureau, Iowa Agriculture Department seeks more money to fight avian bird flu. They're asking the state to appropriate more money to both prepare for and respond to animal illnesses. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag asked a budget subcommittee on Monday to double the state appropriations going to that cause from $750,000 to $1.5 million. The boost would allow the department to better respond to threats like bird flu and African swine fever, Nag said. With the new money, the department would, would hire more employees and buy equipment for responding to African swine fever, he said. The department is also asking for increased funding for meat and poultry inspection, weights and measures, pesticide investigations, and the soil and land conservation cost share. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget would keep the general fund appropriations to the Agriculture Department the same, but would add $500,000 from a separate fund to cover the equipment costs for foreign animal illness response. Headline, ABC News broadcaster Robin Roberts to present Morningside's Weight Lecture and this article was written by the staff of the Sioux City Journal newspaper. Robin Roberts, who is also the co-anchor of ABC's Good Morning America, will deliver the 2023 weight lecture on April the 19th. Now, this event, which is taking place in conjunction with the inauguration of Morningside University's 13th president, Dr. Albert Mosley, begins at 5.30 p.m. in the university's Epley Auditorium located at 3625 Garrison Avenue. Robin Roberts is an incredibly accomplished individual with an inspiring and motivating message. And I'm thrilled to have her part of the inauguration celebration. Moreover, she also has a unique connection to Morningside as her late father. Air Force Colonel Lawrence Roberts is a 1957 graduate of Morningside. We were fortunate enough to host Ms. Roberts on campus almost two decades ago to honor her father and deliver the 2005 weight lecture, and we look forward to welcoming her once again, Mosley said in a statement. Under Robert's leadership as co-anchor of Good Morning America, the broadcast has won numerous Emmy Awards for Outstanding Morning Program and the 2017 People's Choice Award for Favorite Daytime Television Hosting Team. And former college standout athlete Robin Roberts has a pretty incredible resume. In 2014, Roberts launched Rockin' Robin's production, an independent television production company, creating original broadcast and digital programming. Current series include the award-winning Thriver Thursday digital series, the Robin Roberts Presents banner of scripted and documentary projects 
for the Lifetime Television Network and Turning the Tables with Robin Roberts for Disney+. Disney+. Roberts began contributing to Good Morning America in 1995 and was named co-anchor in May of 2005. Prior to that, Roberts was a host of ESPN Sports Center and contributed to NFL Primetime. Roberts graduated cum laude from Southeastern Louisiana University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Communications. She was a standout performer on the women's basketball team, ending her career as one of the school's all-time leading scorers and leading rebounder. In 2012, Roberts was named an inductee to the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Roberts is the author of From the Heart, Seven Rules to Live By and Everybody's Got Something. Her third book, Brighter by the Day, Waking Up to New Hopes and Dreams, debuted last year. Roberts is a native of the Mississippi Gulf Coast and currently resides in New York City. Roberts' father, Colonel Lawrence uh, Roberts, class of 57, received a total of 19 service medals and awards during a distinguished career with the United States Air Force. He was one of the famed Tuskegee Airmen during World War II, and he later served in Vietnam, where he won one of his three Legion of Merit medals. The other two came from service at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Norman Waite Jr., a 1986 Morningside graduate and a former member of the Morningside University Board of Directors, established the Waite Lecture Series at Morningside University in 1977, and he saw it as an opportunity to bring the world to Morningside University students and the community through appearances by nationally and internationally known leaders in business, politics, economics, history, and the media. Lecturers in the past have included journalist Bob Woodward, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, economist and humorist Ben Stein, and also documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. And once again, the bottom line is uh, Robin Roberts, co-host of ABC News Good Morning America, will deliver a special lecture on April the 19th at Morningside University. Headline for this next article, New Iowa Democratic Leader says that the demise of the caucus is not a done deal. And this article was written by Aaron Murphy, a reporter for the journal's Des Moines Bureau. The new leader of the Iowa Democratic Party has not given up on Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses, even as a vote to strip that lofty status away looms in mere days. Rita Hart, a former state legislator and candidate for Congress and lieutenant governor, who is just two days into her tenure as state party chair, told Iowa reporters on Monday that she believes Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation caucus status is not yet dead, and that she plans to work toward a caucus solution that is in Iowa's best interest. Democrats' national leadership committee is scheduled to meet this coming weekend in Philadelphia, 
to vote on a proposal from its Rules and Bylaws Committee to overhaul the, party, overhaul the party's presidential nominating calendar, including they want to revoke Iowa's prized first-in-the-nation status for Democratic candidates, which the state has held for over 50 years. But Iowa's heart believes there is still hope for Iowa. This is certainly not a done deal, Hart told reporters in her first news conference as state party chair. She says, quote, I'm hoping that we have some good news soon on that front. Iowa's first in the nation status is one thing that both Iowa Democrats and Iowa Republicans have worked on together in the past. Republican Party of Iowa State Chair Jeff Kaufman has worked hard with Hart's predecessors to maintain that leadoff spot for both parties. And the headline for this next article written by reporter Dolly Butts, OVG360 is looking for a new general manager for the Tyson Events Center, which is a pretty popular place for entertainment. Rick Hans, OVG 360 Senior Vice President, confirmed that Tim Savona, who has been the general manager since February of 2019, has accepted a position with another company but will remain in the industry. Hans says, quote, He's going to a bigger building almost double the size, so he's growing in the industry. You grow in this company and in this industry. Savona told the Journal on Monday that he is going to Pinnacle Bank Arena in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that his last day at the Tyson Center will be February the 10th. Pinnacle Bank Arena is a 15,500-seat multi-purpose arena, which is owned by the city of Lincoln, Nebraska, and managed by ASM Global. Global. It has been an honor and a privilege to serve this community. Our team of 20 full-time staff pretty much remains intact. We will continue to evolve and grow and make sure that everyone is serviced. And that is a quote from Savannah. Also leaving Sioux City is Karanate's wife, Megan, but she is staying with OVG360 and is being promoted from her role as Director of Corporate Sponsorships, according to Hans. Hans said that OVG360 will first get a temporary general manager to come into the Tyson Center until the right person is found, he said. He added the search could take a month or a couple of months. He said the job has been posted and that quite a few applicants have already applied. I think it's important to know that because we're such a big company in this industry, we're not going to miss a beat there, Hans said. We're going to stay on top of things and we're going to continue to book it. We're going to continue to build on success that we've had for the last five years. The 10,000-seat Tyson Arena has been owned and run by the city ever since it opened to the public in 2003. The Orpheum is independently owned and jointly operated with the city. 
Last February, the Oakview Group announced it had rebranded its OVG Facilities Division and its Spectra acquisition as OVG 360 and OVG Acquired Spectra in November of 2021. And the headline for this next article, written by Brittany Miner of the Gazette Cedar Rapids, here's what you need to know about forever chemicals in the state of Iowa. Josh Rodriguez has worked as a territory manager for Culligan of Marion, a water treatment supplier for 25 years. And in the last six years, a new concern has cropped up among his customers. Chemicals known as perfluoroacyl substances, or PFAS. Rodriguez says that he's responded to as much as a dozen calls over the past year, particularly from customers around Central City and the Eastern Iowa Airport, where the chemicals have been detected in drinking water supplies. It's something that's becoming more and more common to hear customers asking about, he said. They just ask if we have any kind of treatment for these chemicals, if there's anything that they can do to filter it out of their water. Federal and state agencies have struggled to keep up with what scientists are learning about PFAS, which is the chemicals are pervasive, persistent, and harmful. Here's what we know about these forever chemicals, how Iowa is combating them, and what you can do to help keep your drinking water safe. Well, for starters, what are PFAS? PFAS refers to a group of thousands of man-made chemicals that have been used to make materials resistant to heat, oil, stains, grease, and water since the 1930s. You can find them in common products like non-stick cookware, water-resistant clothes, cleaning supplies, food packaging, and even in adhesives. And although two of the most studied types of these chemicals, the perfluorooctanic acid and perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, are no longer produced in the United States, other varieties are still used across manufacturing and industrial sectors here in this country. Now, these are often called forever chemicals because their particular molecular structures are made of strong bonds so they don't degrade easily. Now, this allows them to build up and persist over time. PFAs can end up in the environment through several avenues. They are in treated leachate. Leachate is the water that percolates through landfills and teaches contaminants and industrial wastewater that is discharged into waterways. They're in the sewage waste, often applied to fields where they can infiltrate groundwater. These forever chemicals are also in some firefighting foams that have been widely used for decades. A 2021 study found evidence of the chemicals in a third of sampled waterways in the state of Iowa. They're basically in our soil, they are in our water, they're in the air. And that is uh, an exact quote from Corey McCoy, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources PFA's uh, coordinator. Research on these chemicals and their health effects is still evolving, 
said David Courtney, director of the Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination at the University of Iowa. Now, much of that information comes from studying communities near these manufacturers. A recent study found that eating one freshwater fish could equal a month of drinking these PFAS-contaminated water. And scientists do know that long-term exposure to these forever chemicals is linked to a myriad of negative health impacts, including cancer, reproductive effects, child development, hormones, immune system, and high cholesterol levels. Now, in total, these forever chemicals contamination has been detected in the following public water supplies in Iowa. Now, this is based on data from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, Ames Water Treatment Plant, Burlington Municipal Water Works, the Comanche Water Supply, Central City Water Supply, Dubuque Water Works, Muscatine Power and Water, Sioux City Water Supply, and the Tama Water Supply. About 20 other water suppliers are continuing to monitor their water for these chemicals on a quarterly basis. And several of the contaminated locations have since taken vulnerable wells offline, or they've been blending water from several wells to dilute the contamination. And in summation, the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law allocated more than $100 million to the state of Iowa for its drinking water and clean water state revolving funds, including $12 million specifically dedicated to emerging contaminants like PFAs. And that article was written by Brittany J. Miller, is the energy and environmental reporter for the Gazette, and a core member with Report for America, which is a national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercover issues. And the next headline, a Lincoln man is facing felony charges for explosives. And this article was written by reporter Andrew Wedgley. He is with the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. Two days after Lincoln police uncovered at least five homemade explosive devices during a Wednesday traffic stop, a 24-year-old Lincoln man is facing felony charges over his alleged involvement in making and possessing the explosives, according to authorities. Spencer Spidell owned the vehicle that police pulled over early Wednesday in northwest Lincoln, Nebraska, where officers discovered two handmade explosives wrapped in duct tape inside the vehicle. And that's according to the assistant police chief, Brian Jackson. Spidell's arrest marks the latest development in an investigation that started with a seemingly random traffic stop at about 1 a.m. Wednesday. And now it involves the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And that's according to what Jackson said at a recent news conference. Police stopped Spidell's car, which was being driven by a 24-year-old Lincoln man 
near Northwest 7th Street and Cornhusker Highway. Police searched the vehicle for narcotics after finding the driver in possession of suspected methamphetamine, Jackson said. Police found two suspected explosives devices, and then they radioed for the Lincoln Fire and Rescue's special bomb squad to respond. Technicians responded and rendered the devices safe, Jackson said. In court records, investigator Robert Martin said the officer who initially discovered the explosive devices during the traffic stop found what appeared to be a small lockbox. Upon opening the box, white beads poured out, Martin said, and then police found a metal canteen wrapped in tape. Inside the canteen, authorities saw exposed wiring connected to a battery pack surrounded by what appeared to be gunpowder, Martin wrote in court filings. As technicians handled the explosives, investigators turned their attention to Spidell, who owned the car and lived in an apartment a block from where the traffic stop occurred. Police were able to obtain a search warrant and they searched the apartment, one of several units in a home, at 2330 Northwest 8th Street, and they found Spidell hiding under a blanket in the laundry room, Martin said in an affidavit for Spidell's arrest. Investigators also found three additional explosive devices. Authorities evacuated the entire apartment complex and removed the devices without incident, according to Jackson. The assistant police chief said some of the devices recovered from Spidell's apartment were in, quote, various stages of development, and he said police also located items that suggested Spidell was constructing the devices at his residence. Jackson declined to speculate on why Spidell had allegedly possessed or manufactured the explosives, but said investigators, quote, have no indication of domestic terrorism. But it's again, it's an illegal act and certainly of concern based on the nature of violations. Federal investigators are working to determine the potential potency of the explosives. Jackson said police hadn't ruled out whether the 23-year-old who was driving Spidell's car had been involved in the alleged explosives operation. But as of last Friday, the second man has not been arrested for any such connection. Police Chief Teresa Ewan said, quote, I would describe this as very good work from our officers overnight who patrol blocks of business areas against burglaries, graffiti, and other crimes. They saw this individual at an area convenience store, saw him act on a sus- in a suspicious manner, stopped at the convenience store to make sure the clerk was okay, but then the officers also observed this vehicle immediately in violation of traffic code. And as of right now, police say no charges are pending against the driver. Headline, Sheldon Woman has been charged with insurance fraud. And this article was uh, written by reporter Nick Hightrack. A Sheldon woman has been charged with providing false claims to an insurer in connection with an insurance claim. 
Miranda Miller, 32, was arrested on Tuesday on a charge of insurance fraud presenting false information, which is a Class D felony. According to a complaint filed in O'Brien County District Court, Miller in September made false statements about existing auto insurance coverage in an attempt to receive insurance benefits. The Iowa's Insurance Fraud Division began an investigation in November and filed the complaint on January the 17th. And some of the latest news stories from the Woodbury County Court Report as compiled and reported by Sioux City Journal reporter Nick Hytrek. Before Judge James Dane, Madeline Janelle Bishop, 23, of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, second-degree criminal mischief, probation violation, sentenced January 27th, deferred judgment, and probation revoked, 10 years in prison. Santos Velasco Harvey, 39, of Sioux City, second-degree burglary, sentenced January 26th to 10 years in prison suspended, and three years probation. Cody William Ray, 37, of Washta, Iowa, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 24th to five years in prison suspended and two years probation. Jemiah Alexander Burton, 28, of Sioux City, eluding operating while intoxicated, possession of a controlled substance, sentenced January the 19th to five years in prison, suspended, two years probation for eluding, and two days in jail on the possession charges. David Huff, 48, of Glenola, North Dakota, second-degree theft, sentenced January the 19th to five years prison, suspended, two years probation. And before Judge Patrick Todd, Thomas Dwayne Kinnart, 59, of Missouri Valley, Iowa, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 23rd to five years prison suspended and two years probation. And the headline for this next article, Man Pleads Not Guilty of Attempted Murder in Sioux City. And this article was written and reported by reporter Nick Hytrack. Francisco Tapia, 25, of Remsen, Iowa, entered his written plea on Tuesday in Woodbury County District Court to willful injury and second offense possession of a controlled substance in addition to attempted murder. He is charged in the January the 14th stabbing of another man in the 2700 block of Floyd Boulevard. According to court documents, Tapia shoved the victim to the ground and punched him in the head inside the laundry. After the victim got up and was walking away, Tapia followed him and stabbed him three times in the back, arm, and the leg. The victim was taken to the hospital for treatment of potentially life-threatening injuries. Police officers viewing a surveillance video of the incident identified Tapia as a suspect and found him three hours later inside a garage in the 1500 block of 23rd Street, sleeping in a vehicle that did not belong to him, armed with a knife and in possession of psychedelic mushrooms. 
During an interview with police, Tapia admitted to the stabbing, according to court documents. Man charged with committing vandalism at a federal building in Sioux City, and this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrack. According to court documents, an individual walked up to the east entrance of the Sioux City Federal Building, 326th Street, at about 12.15 p.m. on Saturday, and struck the glass next to the door with an object several times before the glass shattered. Building security cameras recorded the incident, and Sioux City Police identified the suspect as 33-year-old Dudley Blackbird, who was arrested on Monday afternoon and booked into the Woodbury County Jail on a charge of fourth-degree criminal mischief, a serious misdemeanor. Damage to the federal building was estimated at $700. And the headline for this next article, a new bill in Iowa would limit solar panel construction near some properties. And this article was written by reporter Caleb McCullough. Energy companies and landowners would be limited on where they can set up solar panel arrays. That's under a new bill advanced in the Iowa State Senate. The bill is Senate Study Bill 1077 and it would prohibit setting up a commercially-owned solar field on land suitable for agriculture within 150 feet of a neighboring property or within 1,250 feet of a neighboring residence or livestock facility. A three-member subcommittee advanced the bill two to one, noting that they tend to amend it. Senators Dan Zumbach, Republican of Ryan, and Don Driscoll, Republican of Williamsburg, voted to advance it, while State Senator Tony Bisnano, Democrat of Des Moines, voted not to advance the bill. The bill is intended to address multiple concerns that landowners have about solar fields on neighboring properties. Some landowners don't like to see solar panels near their property. You're listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, February the 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Richard Baker of Moville, Iowa, 76, died on Monday, January 23rd, 2023. Celebration of life will be held at a later date, and arrangements are with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City, Iowa. Connie F. Borkowski of Marcus, Iowa, 58, died on Monday, January 23, 2023. Arrangements are with Waterbury Funeral Service in Sioux City. Judd Grove Butler, formerly of Sioux City, 91, died on Wednesday, January 25, 2023. Minor Brothers Colonial Chapel in Sioux City, Iowa, is in charge of arrangements. Larry A. Daniels, 72, of Sioux City, died on January the 17th, Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of local arrangements. 
Robert H. Dolphin, 71, of Sioux City, passed away on Friday, January 27, 2023. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Interment will be at a later date. Robert was born on November 29, 1951, to Catherine DeCruff Dolphin in Sioux City, he graduated from East High School in 1970, and then Robert later decided to go to Western Iowa Tech Community College for electronic engineering. Robert married his best friend, Gene Anderson, on January 14, 1972 in Sioux City. Into this marriage, they had two amazing boys. He worked for his father for numerous years as Siouxland Vault Company and also worked at Knopfler Chevrolet. His zeal and love for God were deepened as he passed through recent experiences of life. He radiated joy and contentment as a result. He will be truly missed by family and friends. Robert is survived by his wife of 51 years, Jean Dolphin of Sioux City. Two sons, Randy and Jennifer Dolphin of Sioux City and Michael Dolphin of Sioux City. Three grandchildren, Tice, Jade, and Rice Dolphin, all of Sioux City. And many nieces, nephews, and friends. Robert was preceded in death by his parents, two sisters, Shirley Duckett and Corrine Banner, parents-in-law, Leland and Loretta Anderson, one brother-in-law, Larry Anderson, and one nephew, Rick Richardson. Jane Elizabeth Fallon of Hayden, Idaho, but formerly of Sioux City, 81 years old, passed away on Monday, January the 16th, at home in Litchfield Park, Arizona, surrounded by family and friends. Christy Smith Funeral Homes and Morningside Chapel, they are in charge of arrangements. Jane was born November 9, 1941 in Lincoln, Nebraska. She graduated from Central High School in Sioux City in 1960 and attended Colorado Women's College. And after one year, she transferred to Colorado University in Boulder, where she was an Alpha Phi and received a Bachelor of Science in Medical Technology in 1964. On July 30, 1964, Jane was united in marriage with Clifford B. Fallon in Sioux City, and they remained devoted to each other for 58 years. After marrying, they lived in Yuba City, California, where Jane worked as a medical technologist in the Sutter County Hospital. In 1968, the family moved to Minot, North Dakota, where her daughter Stacy was born in 1970, the spouse of a career Air Force officer. Jane provided the home support as the family moved to Papillon, Nebraska, Prattville, Alabama, La Junta, Colorado, and Spokane, Washington. Jane was devoted to her students and inspired them through hands-on training, serving as regional coordinator for National History Day in Idaho. Following her retirement in 2005, Jane loved to travel. 
She spent time in the outdoors, and she loved golfing. She even scored a hole-in-one. Jane was preceded in death by her parents and is survived by her loving husband, Cliff. Her son, Brad Fallon of Atlanta, and her daughter, Stacy Harris, and husband, Jack of Dunwoody, Georgia. Her brother, Dr. Richard Dorman, and his wife, Val of Dakota Dunes. She's also survived by four great-grandchildren. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that memorials in Jane's name be made to the Alzheimer's Association, First Presbyterian Church of Coeur d'Alene, or the church at Litchfield Park. Dr. Rose M. Holman, DDS, 75, of Omaha, and formerly of Remsen, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, January 26, at the Heritage in Sterling Ridge in Omaha. Fish Funeral Home and Monument in Remsen is in charge of arrangements. Rose was born on January 23, 1948, in Lamars, Iowa, the daughter of Gerald and Armella Pottenbaum Homan. She was raised in Remsen on the Homan Jersey farm, and she received her education from Remsen St. Mary's High School, graduating in 1966 from high school. She then attended the University of Washington School of Dentistry, and she graduated with her DDS license. She completed her dental residency in New York City, followed by a career at UCLA School of Dentistry in Los Angeles. And upon retirement, Rose moved to Omaha, Nebraska, where she enjoyed traveling to many countries, most notably Luxembourg. Survivors include her siblings, senior or sister Jeanette Homan of Dubuque, Iowa, Richard and Betty Homan of Remsen, Donald and Lori Homan of Cedar Rapids, Mary Homan of Phoenix, David and Renee Homan of Remsen, Betty Klesitz of Omaha, Rita Homan of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Susan and Tom Genshin of Omaha, she is also survived by Kathy Homan of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Mark and Nina Homan of Gretna, Nebraska, as well as numerous nieces and nephews. Rose was preceded in death by her parents, Gerald and Armella Homan, and brother-in-law, Michael Klesitz. Memorials may be sent to Remsen St. Mary's School in Remsen, Iowa, in memory of Rose. Mark D. Bus Neffel Jr. of Newcastle, Nebraska, formerly of Nebraska, passed away on January 25th at Taylor Hospital House in Des Moines. Everyone is invited to a brief prayer service at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February the 4th, at St. Peter's Church before burial at the Calvary Cemetery in Newcastle, Nebraska. This proud Marine and Vietnam veteran was born on May 28, 1945, the firstborn son of Mark and Gail Neffel of Newcastle. He attended and played football for the University of South Dakota in Vermilion for two years before enlisting in the United States Marine Corps. He was stationed at Camp Lejeune and Camp Pendleton before spending 16 months in Vietnam. 
During two years and two tours, he was awarded the Rifle Sharpshooter Badge, Vietnam Service Medal, Vietnam Campaign Medal, and the Navy Achievement Medal with Combat V. After the service, Buss was employed in retail managing Woolworth stores and opening new stores for Walmart. He later retired from Pella Windows in Carroll, Iowa. In 1986, he married Diane Wilson. They made their home in Scranton, Iowa. Diane became his amazing caretaker when Buss became ill. We will always be grateful to you, Diane. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you for taking such good care of our brother and our uncle. Buss is survived by his wife, Diane, brothers Otto, Doug Neffel, and Kirk and Denise Neffel of Newcastle, nephews Scott and Jen Neffel of Wayne, Nebraska, and Brent and Shannon Neffel of Sergeant Bluff, Nebraska, nieces Kristen and Jason Dendinger of Hardington, Nebraska, and Megan and Mike Sorensen of Newcastle, Nebraska. Twelve great nieces and nephews, one great great niece, and he is also survived by many cousins. He was preceded in death by his parents, Mark and Gail Wendy Kneffel, and his best buddy, Tucker. Any memorials received will be given to the American Legion in his memory. Finally, as he closed out all of his letters home, he wrote, Take it easy, bus. Oorah. Charles Allen Knopfler of Sioux City, Iowa, 69 years old, passed away peacefully on Friday, January the 13th of 2023. A celebration of his life will take place from 2 to 4 p.m. on February the 4th at Country Celebrations in Sioux City. He was born on January 30, 1953 in Sioux City to James C. and Barbara Ellen Knopfler. Charles usually is known as Charlie and he spent his adolescence in Sioux City, eventually graduating from Central High School as class president in 1971. And from there, his continuing education brought him to Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, focusing on a degree in business. Charlie met his future wife there, and Charlie and Christine Ann Kingdom were married in Tulsa, Oklahoma on January 31st of 1976. And Charlie is survived by his wife, Christy Kingdom Knopfler, two sons, Ben and Marianne Schultz, and Joe, and his wife, Rachel Deemer of Sioux City. He is also survived by his sister, Catherine Knopfler, brother Jim Knopfler and Kathy of Des Moines, sister-in-law, Jackie Christensen of Knopfler of Sioux City, and four grandchildren, Ellis, Ollie, Nora, and Anne. Charlie was preceded in death by his parents and his brother, Bill. In lieu of flowers, the family requests memorials be donated to the charity of your choosing. And now, uh, let's turn to the opinion page of the Sioux City Journal newspaper. And starting off with a letter to the editor that begins, Public schools don't get to pick their students. We're told that if public schools were better, 
there wouldn't be a need for this voucher law. I have worked in both public and private schools for years, and the difference is not staff, it's the students. Private schools have motivated and well-educated kids because they get to pick, while public schools have no such option. And to those of you considering private schools, particularly students who need special education training, your kids' experience may be no better than their present school. And that letter to the editor was written by Terry Dahlquist of Sioux City. And this next opinion piece, this is actually from the editorial board of the Sioux City Journal newspaper. Thumbs up for early wine and Nelson appointments. Thumbs down for snap changes. Thumbs up. Congratulations to Rod Earlywine for being selected to be the next superintendent of the Sioux City Community School District. And here is another from the opinion page, and let's see. Headline, Der Veronica DeRuji, bipartisanship is the solution to some problems. But you have to realize, bipartisanship also help create these problems. We have some big problems that require big solutions that won't be achieved without agreement from across the aisle. Well, think about it this way. The federal government's debt is now $31 trillion. Let me repeat that again. The federal government's debt right now is $31 trillion. That's trillion with a T. And because Uncle Sam has spent so much, he must borrow as much wealth as we produce yearly. And unfortunately, that's just the beginning. Even if no new programs are created by 2040, our debt will be 132% the size of our gross domestic product, on its way to 185% by the year 2052. The primary drivers of our debt are Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. The Manhattan Institute's Brian Rydell calculated that adding the spending on just these programs to the interest that we pay on the debt accounts for 86% of the growth of government spending between 2008 and 2032. Republicans and Democrats have agreed to such large Medicare and Social Security benefits that over the next 30 years, these two programs alone will confront a shortfall of $116 trillion. And sadly, for all the talk about congressional gridlock, there has been a remarkable bipartisan refusal to do anything about it. If you examine congressional spending objectively, you'll see that bipartisanship is everywhere. For every fight that derails a controversial spending bill, such as Build Back Better, you'll see trillions of dollars approved on a bipartisan basis. Yet, most of these dollars go to programs that shouldn't have been approved in the first place. Handouts to special interest groups functions that should be performed at the state level or by private actors or programs that have failed to deliver on their objectives. But the bottom line is that when I look at Congress's performance over the years, 
all I see is a lot of bipartisanship agreements which add big expenses to Uncle Sam's credit card, continue cronyism, and impose a bevy of regulations that meddle in our lives, hence my skepticism about bipartisanship. The complication is that we won't get out of this mess without big reforms, which we'll only get from bipartisanship. This is how we got some notable, uh, notable bipartisan successes, including welfare reform, balanced budgets, and fiscal reduction compromises, such as the 2011 Budget Control Act and the 2013 Fiscal Cliff Deal. What would make for good bipartisan projects? Well, the most pressing ones involve reforming Social Security and Medicare. Those programs are not just insolvent. Their trust funds are on pace to run out of assets within about a decade, leading to some serious budget cuts. And while seniors today are overrepresented in the top income, well, many could handle the cuts. Some are poor and depend on those programs. So Congress needs to act fast, no matter what public opinion says. Plenty of issues could be taken on with the enthusiastic support of the American people. Immigration reform is one of them. Indeed, most Americans are favorable to immigrants and despondent about the current situation at the border. Congress needs to find a bipartisan solution. And it's also time to put an end to the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act. In case you don't remember, this is the act that requires federal agencies to consider the environmental effects of their major, major actions. An enormous amount of literature shows that NEPA's enormous economic costs far exceed its environmental benefits while slowing down and even bringing a halt to the construction of badly needed infrastructure. The country has so many problems these days that People who are ideologically separated by a fair amount should be able to find some common agreement. In fact, they must. But bipartisanship is only as good as the bargains it produces. And that opinion piece was written by Veronica DeRuji. She is the George Gibbs Chair in Political Economy and a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And turning now to sports on the, from the Sioux City Journal newspaper. Uh, this past Sunday, the Iowa basketball team uh, won. They defeated Rutgers at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. The final score, 93-82. Patrick McCaffrey stepped up with a spring and a jump step, three fingers in the air, and a smile across his face. McCaffrey returned to action for the Iowa Hawkeyes. Coming off of my hand, I knew it was going in, the forward said. To see it go in and to hear the crowd, that's a moment I'm going to remember for the rest of my life and it got me going. McCaffrey took the court with 13 minutes, 56 seconds remaining in the first half. He received a standing ovation as he returned to competition following a six-game absence. And just under a minute later, he started a perfect 3-4-3 game from three-point range 
part of a nine-point performance that included a pair of assists, a block, and a steal in 13 minutes of action. Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said it was awesome to see his son back where he belonged, bringing energy and effort to the court, and it didn't surprise him that he played well. He practiced very hard on Saturday. He shot it well, and he looked like himself, the senior McCaffrey said. He played like he practiced, and I'm happy for him, proud of how he attacked this and the way that he went very professional about it. The Hawkeyes regained their shooting from three-point range and the free-throw line, which were both absent in their Thursday loss to Michigan State. Turning now to football, Hawkeyes are adding a transfer offensive lineman, and this article was written by reporter Steve Batterson. An offensive lineman with 33 games of starting experience in the Mid-American Conference will join the Iowa football program as a graduate transfer. His name is Rusty Feth. He is a six foot five, three hundred and four pounder who spent the past four seasons playing guard at center at Miami of Ohio University. He announced that on social media Sunday that he will join the Iowa State Hawkeyes football team. I'm proud of myself, and I'm so excited to announce that I have committed to the University of Iowa, he wrote, and I cannot wait to be around these fantastic people. A native of Coleran, Iowa, or Coleran, Ohio, I should say, Feth announced on January 23rd his plans to explore transfer options after earning his undergraduate degree at Miami of Ohio. Now, a lot of people wanted him. This just past week, he was offered scholarships by Purdue, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, and Old Dominion, in addition to the Iowa offer, which preceded a weekend visit to Iowa City. Feth is the second offensive lineman to transfer to the Iowa program since the end of the 2022 season. Dejon Parker, a tackle, at the NCAA Division II level for Saginaw Valley State, announced earlier this month he is transferring to Iowa as well. Iowa also hosted another potential transfer, linebacker Nick Jackson from Virginia. Over the weekend, he earned all Atlantic Coast Conference honors for the Cavaliers. And turning back to news, thousands rally for annual Walk of Life. And this article was written by reporter Damon Bennett of the Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper. Thousands of Nebraskans braved freezing temperatures this past Saturday to attend the 49th annual Walk of Life organized by Nebraska Right to Life. Local and state officials, including Governor Jim Pillen, Senators Deb Fisher and Pete Ricketts, and Representatives Don Bacon and Mike Flood, spoke at the event. They shared excitement over the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. Well, that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 1st, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.